The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Good morning, church. Today's passage is from Numbers chapter 25. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These, individ- these invited the people to sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family. In the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel. While they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting, when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus, the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for God and made atonement for the people of Israel. The name of the slain man of Israel, who was killed with the Midianite woman, was Zimri, the son of Salu, chief of a father's house belonging to the Simeonites. And the name of the Midianite woman who was killed was Cosby, the daughter of Zer, who was the tribal head of a father's house in Midian. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Harass the Midianites and strike them down, for they have harassed you with their wiles, for with which they beguiled you in the matter of Peor and in the matter of Cosby the daughter of the chief of Midian, their sister who was killed on the day of the plague, who, on the plague on account of Peor. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> well, uh, hate is um, a very strong word, one of the strongest, hate. And so strong that some of you parents in the room maybe even teach your kids not to use it, right? So instead of them saying, I hate broccoli, you teach them maybe to say, uh, let's, let's try it. It's not my favorite, you know? Instead of, I hate you, you know? We, we teach them to say, uh, I'm very frustrated right now. 
Uh, hate is also a word our culture uses in, in all kinds of ways. Hate speech is a term that has come into prominence in my adult lifetime. And no matter how you define it, whether it's aimed at modern day anti-Semitism, right? We call that hate speech. Um, or, or whether it, it's aimed at Christians, perhaps, who are just articulating a, a biblical, historical, biblical view of sex, gender, marriage. Um, that gets called hate speech too. And so no, no matter how you define hate speech, the one thing that it all has in common is, right, we, we view it as sort of this bad thing. So how, whatever your definition of hate speech is, for you, it's a bad thing. When, when I walk around my neighborhood, um, I live in a, a yard sign neighborhood. Um, I, I don't know if this is true of you or not. Like in my neighborhood, you don't have to wonder what people believe. They just put it on a sign and stick it in their front yard. And, um, and one of the yard signs, one of the most common ones I see, has these words on it. It says, hate has no home here. Have you seen these signs? Right? And um, even if we don't agree with everything else on that sign, even if we don't agree with maybe the colors on the sign or, or whatever else, the ideology that's, that's behind that sign and, and all that sort of stuff, if if our ideologies even don't perfectly line up, most of us would adopt that same slogan in some way, shape, or form. Hate has no home here. We're going to be talking about hate this morning. <laughs> some of you are like, will alarm go off if I run out that door right now? Is the video on? Like, what's happening here, okay? We're going to talk about hate this morning because this text, what I want to persuade you of from this text in Numbers 25 is that God wants you to hate sin, to hate it. This is what our text is about. I want you to leave here today with a greater hatred for sin and an increased intensity of hostility toward and an aversion to sin in your life. An increased dislike or disgust, not deriving from fear like the dictionary or, or the world defines hate, but deriving from the Word of God. God hates sin. God wants you to hate sin. In order to understand this, we're going to look at, from our text, three points. Number one, our propensity to sin. Number two, our need for atonement. And number three, our call to battle. First, our propensity to sin. Our text begins in Numbers 25, verse 1, with God's people encamped at a place with a funny name called Shittim, right? This is significant because it is the final encampment of God's people here before they go into the promised land. And so for the rest of Numbers, all of Deuteronomy, the opening chapters of Joshua, the people of God are camped here at and around Shittim. It's from this place in Joshua chapter 3 that they will break camp, cross the Jordan River, and go finally into the promised land. But while they were there, Verse 1 tells us, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. Your translation might have commit adultery or um, infidelity, sexual immorality. The point is the same. The Israelite men began to have sex with the Moabite women and, as we'll see, the Midianite women too. This is a big deal. One, it's a big deal because for many of them who were, you know, the ones who were married, it was, it was a breaking of the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. But it was a big deal for even bigger reasons than that. See, because back in Exodus chapter 34, God had warned the people, don't do this because you shall worship no other God. For the Lord, whose name is what? Jealous, is a jealous God. 
lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you're invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. Do you see why God said don't sleep with the women of the land? Because it would lead inevitably to worship of their gods. The sex was sin, but it's also a, a gateway sin into idolatry. This is exactly what we see happen in our text in Numbers 25. These, okay, the daughters of Moab invited the people, invited the Israelite men to the sacrifices of their gods, and, to the, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. So having invited or, or seduced, we'll see that word later, having seduced the male Israelites into having sex, they proceed to have them, invite them into their, their sex worship pagan rituals to their pagan god Baal, the infertility god, the fertility god, the fertility god. This is actually the first reference in the Bible to the god Baal. This pagan god who will become the primary antagonist in the hearts of God's people for most of the rest of the Old Testament. This is a big deal. I mean, God's people in, in Numbers, they've, they've, they've not been awesome, right? A lot of complaining, a lot of grumbling, uh, the, the rebellion and all that. Never before in the book of Numbers, though, have they actually bowed down and worshipped another God until here. The last time they did it, Exodus 32 and the golden calf. Now think about that. Exodus 32 represents sort of the, the beginning of this generation of God's people when they were delivered out of Egypt, right? We're in Numbers 25 now. Next week is 26, the new census, the new generation. In other words, the book ends, at the book ends of this first generation, what do we see? Idol worship. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, verse 3 says. And the, the irony of what we read about here is staggering. In fact, the, the parallels to Exodus 32 are staggering. We just came off some of the most beautiful, powerful words. In, in last week, Numbers 22 through 24, we saw how God's blessed people cannot be cursed. And remember how all of that, everything that Balak and Balaam were doing was unbeknownst to God's people. It was going on, remember, behind the scenes. Just like the golden calf incident occurred while Moses was behind the scenes, up, up meeting with God on the mountain, unbeknownst to the people who were growing impatient, and had Aaron make the cow so they could worship it. Listen to how one Old Testament scholar speaks of this. He says, in this way, the Bible startles its readers by the way it juxtaposes the brightness of revelations and the darkest of sins. The law giving at Sinai was followed by the making of the golden calf. Here we have another classic example of this pattern. The wonderful prophecies of Balaam are succeeded by the great apostasy at Peor. And in this way, Scripture ties, uh, tries to bring home to us the full wonder of God's grace in the face of man's incorrigible propensity to sin. Can you relate to that? The great contrast of the full wonder of God's grace. So let's say on a Sunday morning, 
You know, you come here and you're, you're here and you're praising him and you're worshiping him. You have a posture of worship in your life and then your incorrigible propensity to sin, let's say, on Sunday night or Monday. We're really not that different than the Israelites here, are we? And when we take Numbers 25 in line with the chapters that just preceded it, what we see is that God's blessed people cannot be cursed. We said that last week. We applied it to ourselves. It's still true. God's blessed people cannot be cursed, but they can be seduced. Seduced. The wilderness of this world is seductive. Temptations and traps, they surround us. They entice us. They invite us to sin. We live in a world that normalizes sin everywhere we look. And sexual sin in particular is named in our text. That's, that's pretty common. That's a pretty common one in our day. But notice what it led to. Idolatry. In fact, we might say that behind every sin or underneath every sin lurks idolatry. What is idolatry? It's when we look to something other than God for anything we're to look ultimately to God for. That's idolatry. What were the Israelites looking for? We're not exactly told. Satisfaction, perhaps. Comfort. There's lots of things that drive us sexually. Control. Excitement. These are all idols. They're little G-gods that we give ourselves to. You see, God is to be our ultimate satisfaction. God is to be our ultimate comfort. He's to be the one that we rest in his control of the universe, in his sovereignty. He's to be our ultimate excitement in life. Our chief end is to glorify him and enjoy him forever. But we're surrounded and enticed and invited to look to things other than God for what we're to look ultimately to God for. That's idolatry. It's sin. You and I, Christian or not, we have an immense propensity to it. And God wants you to hate it. He does. We see his anger kindled against it here in verse 3. Now, here's, here's our problem, you know. Um, not only do we live in a culture that normalizes sin, we live in a time where there's no shared definition of sin whatsoever. No objective definition. If you're here and, and, and if you're here and you're not a Christian, if I gave you a list of the Ten Commandments, just gave you a list of them and asked you to rank them in, in order of importance, there's a really good chance that you'd put thou shalt not murder up here towards the top. And thou shalt have no other gods before me down here, probably towards the bottom. Why? Well, most of us don't want to live in a world where murder is fine, where murder is okay, acceptable, or anything like that. We, we don't want to live in a society like that, but no other gods? That sounds kind of exclusive. That, that sounds, you know, intolerant. Can't we just leave that one out? Can't we leave God out of it? Do we really need to involve him in all of this? Absolutely we do. Listen to how one writer puts it. He says, if God does not exist, and I would add if he's not supreme and, and the object of our exclusive worship, if God does not exist, then everything is permissible. If there's no transcendent being to define for us what is right and what is wrong, then there can be no absolute right or wrong. 
only personal preferences. Sound like the world you live in? If there's no one with the authority to command us, thou shalt not murder becomes a mere opinion. A suggestion rather than a commandment. However, if there is a transcendent being who has commanded what our behavior should be, then it is perfectly logical that his first commandment should restrict us from worshiping any pretenders to his throne. It starts with God, see? What did he say? We don't get to subtract from it. We don't get to add to it. We need to know it. In fact, there's a spot in Deuteronomy 4 where, where Moses is commanding obedience to the statutes and the rules. Still here at Shittim. And he says specifically, don't add to it, don't take from it. And then to build his rationale, he quotes our passage here in Numbers 25. Listen to this. He says, you shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal of Peor. For the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. That's him speaking to the new generation. The the, the old one has passed away by then. Likely the remainder of them are going to die out here in chapter 25. The application? We need to know God's word. You need to know God's word. Because of your propensity to sin... You need to know what God calls sin so you can grow in hating sin as God hates sin. How's that going to happen? By reading this thing. And and reading it again and and rereading it and reading it again. How's that going for you? Honestly. There's no shortcuts to this. As Christians, we are to be people of the word. You don't graduate from reading the scriptures. So how's it going? Are you taking time, right, early in the morning or late at night, whether you're early bird or late night owl, whatever it is, lunchtime, nap time, not yours, but the kid, you know, are you taking time to specifically sit down and spend time in God's word? Or are other things crowding it out? As other things crowd out the word of God from our lives, do you know what happens? Our hatred for sin will decrease. We'll grow comfortable with sin. We may even excuse sin. Begin to think and feel fondly about sin. And we'll say, what's the big deal? Because of your propensity to sin, you need to know what God calls sin so that you can grow in hating sin as God hates sin. Read his word. Do it in community. Ask the questions as they come up. I know there's lots of stuff in here. It's like, well, I don't even know what that means. We're going to ask questions of each other, right? And we grow in it together. And as you do that, you're going to be convicted. Why? Because you're sinful. And if you don't, if you can read God's word and not experience conviction, you're probably doing it wrong. 
Now, as we grow in our understanding of our propensity to sin, we, we, listen, we also grow in our understanding of our need for atonement, which is to say the solution for our sin. And this is important when we're talking about wrestling with trying to grow in hating sin. See, we'll be afraid to call our sin sin, let alone hate it the, the way that God hates it, until we really understand that God has taken care of our sin through Jesus. There's a kind of strange sequence of events that happen in, in our text here, beginning in verse 4. First, God speaks to Moses. And what's he tell him? He tells him to, to take all the chiefs of the people, the leaders of the clans, and hang them, put them to death publicly. In fact, the word hang here probably more appropriately means impale them on a pole. Like, put them on display for everyone to see so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. This is God saying, there's a lot of sinning going on. Here's what I want you to do. Take the representatives, the chiefs of the people, and put them to death for everyone to see. It was a sacrificial, representative death. It's also to serve as a deterrent, a public warning. But then look what happens next in, in verse 5. Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. Odd. God said, hang the chiefs. Kill the representatives. Moses says, kill the sinners. It killed those who have committed the whoring and idolatry. And then even more oddly, we slide right into verse 6 with neither seeming to have happened. There, there's no, and Moses did exactly as the Lord commanded. There, there's, there's not even, uh, the people did exactly as Moses commanded. Instead, it seems as if there was no action, only inaction. And if we read 100, uh, Psalm 106, tells, talks about this, this episode. If we read Psalm 106, we learn that the plague, which we'll read, is stopped in verse 8, had already begun here. So here's the sequence that we have. The people committed sin. God said, hang the representatives. Moses says, kill the sinners. A plague is breaking out. And what is everyone doing? Verse 6, they're weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. And it's from this place of weeping at the entrance to the, of the tent of meeting, not doing what God commanded, not even doing what Moses commanded, that behold, one of the people of Israel, verse 14 gives us his name, Zimri, one of the chiefs, actually, who God had commanded to be impaled on a pole. Zimri brings a Midianite woman, if you're like Moabites, Midianites, remember just a couple chapters ago, the Moabites and the Midianites formed an alliance Okay, so for our purposes, Moabites and Midianite women, same thing. They're, they're all bad news here. But Zimri brings Cosby, we're told her name in verse 15, the daughter of the chief of Midian, verse 18 says, Zimri brings Cosby to his family. Think about this. Here we have a prominent leader in Israel bringing the daughter of a prominent leader in Midian straight into the camp. Previously, presumably, the shenanigans were taking place outside the camp. Here, Zimri brings her not just into the camp, not just into his tent, but into his very family. 
in the sight of everyone, it says. He's bringing her home, into his home. And he, he doesn't care what his wife thinks about it. He doesn't seem to care what his kids think. He doesn't care that he's doing it in broad daylight before all the congregation. This is the extreme of defiant sin. Clearly, he had discerned that there was no willingness amongst the leadership to enforce the death penalty that had been announced for those who linked themselves with the Moabites, the Midianites, and their gods. Instead, he just flaunts it in front of everyone. Who's going to stop me? What's the big deal? It's just sex. Well, no one does seem to think it's a big deal, except... Phineas. And Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest. We got Aaron's grandson here. When Phineas saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. So Phineas marches straight into Zimri's tent straight into his inner room, and with one swing, pierces them both, presumably while they were in the very act itself. Through Zimri, probably his back, into her belly. Impaling them on a pole. One of the chiefs belonging to the Simeonites here, just like God actually had originally commanded Moses to do with all the chiefs back in verse 4. And when he did, when Phineas did this, what happened? The plague was stopped. But not before it had wiped out 24,000 due to the inaction of Moses. And so we have God's people in sin. We have God's response to sin. Moses' non-response to sin. Phineas' godly response to sin. All of which leads then to God commending Phineas' godly response to sin. Verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy. He hated sin like I hate sin. Jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. How did he make atonement? By killing the representative. He turned back God's wrath from the people by killing Zimri, the representative, just as God had commanded originally. Now, what's this got to do with you? Well, there's another representative that we're told of in the New Testament, isn't there? Jesus. And just like Moses said to the judges to kill the guilty sinner, so we deserve death as guilty sinners. For the wages of sin is death, scriptures teach. And yet, what Moses said wasn't actually what God said, was it? God didn't say kill the guilty sinners. This time he said, kill the representatives. Which is exactly, sample size one at least, what Phineas did. And when he did, he made atonement for Israel. 
Friends, just as Phineas pierced the representative so that atonement was made for all of sinful Israel, so Jesus was pierced with nails and spear of sinners so that atonement could be made for all who trust in him. He's the ultimate fulfillment of the perpetual priesthood promised to Phineas in verse 13. That the book of Hebrews calls Jesus a priest forever. A permanent priest who made atonement by his own death once for all, taking on the wrath of God and stopping the plague of death for all who believe in him. Here's why this matters. You and I have an, in, an incredible propensity to sin. And God wants us to hate sin. He wants us to hate sin like he hates sin. And he hates sin so much that he sent his one and only son, Jesus, our representative, to die in our place for our sin. And because he did, you're free to hate sin. Listen, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you don't have to be afraid to call sin, sin, because Jesus was sent to forgive your sin. You don't have to be afraid to call your addiction sin. You don't have to be afraid to call your sexual promiscuity sin. You don't have to be afraid to call an abortion sin or your anger, sin, or your greed, or your pride, or your, just your immense self-centeredness. You can call it sin. You don't have to be afraid to call any of it sin because Jesus came to die for your sin. To forgive you of sin. And so trust in Jesus, and you're free to hate your sin. Listen, this is true for Christians in the room too. You don't have to be afraid to admit that there's still sin in your life. I mean, can we be honest here? If there's still sin in your life, you you don't have to, there is still sin in your life. Not if, there is still sin in your life and you don't have to hide it. We can talk about it, we can confess it to one another. We don't have to be afraid of it because we're, we're free to call it sin and to hate it for what it is. You don't have to be afraid to admit that there are things that you look to sometimes other than God for something that you're to look ultimately to God for. Or to use the Bible word, idolatry. You're set free from all that. You're set free from sin to hate your sin. God wants you to hate your sin. And if you struggle with that, if you struggle to hate sin in your life, look to the cross. Look how much it cost. it, It was my sin that held him there. We sing that, don't we? Until it was accomplished. It was all of our sin that held him there. Our past sin, our present sin, even our future sin. It was our sin that held him there. Church, the more clearly you see the love of God put on display through Christ's death on the cross for your sin as your representative, your substitute, the more you'll grow in hating and dwelling sin in your life. Look to the cross. Look to the cross. 
It's at the cross that we're reminded, number one, of our propensity to sin. Number two, our need and even God's provision for atonement. But then also number three, our call to battle. Our call to battle. You know, when the Apostle Paul is instructing Christians in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 10, when he's trying to instruct them as Christians, as those forgiven by Jesus and brought into the church, when he's writing to instruct them on how to live, do you know what he does? He refers back to Numbers 25. And he says these things took place as examples for us so that we won't desire evil as they did. They're written down for our instruction, yours and mine. In other words, we're to read Numbers 25 and realize we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. Instead, verse 14, we're to flee from idolatry. Flee from it. And in between those two verses, Paul tells us that when we're tempted, that when you're tempted in this wilderness called life, with all of its temptations and traps that surround you and entice you and invite you, God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but will always provide a way of escape. This is your call to battle. To have a spirit of Phineas about you with respect to sin. Your sin first and foremost. All right, I'm not talking about dressing up like Phineas for Halloween this week and you know, running around with a spear chasing the sinners of the world. Nothing like that, all right? I'm not talking about you running around pointing out everyone else's sin. Though I think there is application that we could draw from this passage for the topic of church discipline. Fighting sin collectively together as a, bat- as a battle within our body. But before all of that, Before you go running around looking for specks in the eyes of others, Jesus would have you to take the log out of your own eye. And hate it. Battle against it. When tempted, look for the way of escape. Let me point out one of those ways of escape to you. I think it takes shape out of this text in Numbers 25. Look back at Numbers 25 again and notice some of the language that is used. Verse 1, whoring with the daughters of Moab. I mentioned earlier that we can, that can also be translated as uh, commit infidelity. Verse 5, yoking themselves to Baal of Peor. The sense there is being wed to another. Verse 11, Phineas is described as jealous with God's jealousy. He is deeply impassioned. It's actually the same word used in Numbers chapter 5 to describe the jealous husband who thinks his wife is guilty of adultery. Now, why all this language drawn from wedding, marriage, unfaithfulness, jealousy of a husband? Well, because that's what idolatry is. Elsewhere in the Bible is described in terms of spiritual adultery. So what we have in Numbers 25 is Israel abandoning her true husband, the Lord, and taking up with a foreign lover. It's infidelity. Living as if wed to another, and God is like a husband jealous for his bride. And in the New Testament, one of the metaphors for the church, for Christians, for us, 
is the bride of Christ. Now, that's a corporate identity, but it's also experienced individually. You're the bride of Christ. You are. Have you ever thought about yourself in that way? And men, this might be hard. It's it's true for you as it is the women in the room. If you belong to Jesus, you are the bride of Christ. It's a corporate reality that's also true individually. What that means is when you sin, it's like committing adultery against Jesus. You're the bride. He's the bridegroom. And don't forget, he sees everything. He knows everything. He's omnipresent. He's with you always, not just when you're in need and you cry out to him in prayer. (laughs) No, he's with you always. He's present with you when you sin. When you sin, any sin, greed, anger, lying, pride, lust, Drunkenness. Any time that you commit, you know, idolatry, looking to something other than Jesus for anything you're to look ultimately to Jesus for control, comfort, approval. It's like committing adultery right in front of your husband, Jesus. Right there with him in the room. You're being enticed, you're being seduced. And the call to battle is to flee from it. Like Joseph from Potiphar's wife, like get at, like run from it. And let this vivid imagery of the prospect of infidelity to Jesus, right in front of Jesus, cause you to hate sin for what it really is and flee from it. Let this vivid imagery be to you an escape from sin and idolatry and flee from it back into the loving arms of Jesus. He'll take you back. He'll take you back. He died for all your sin, past, present, future. Now that's hard. I know that's hard. No one said it's easy. There's a lot of seduction in this wilderness called America. Temptation everywhere. But we battle. And we battle some more. We fail sometimes and we battle. But can I show you one more thing in the text? Look, Look how our text ends. It gives us a little more insight into what was actually going on at Shittim. And it gives future hope to us. Verse 16, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Harass the Midianites and strike them down, for they have harassed you with their wiles. That word means tricks and schemes. They've harassed you with their tricks and schemes with which they beguiled you. That means deceived, seduced. They've seduced you in the matter of Peor and in the matter of Cosby, the daughter of the chief of Midian, their sister, who was killed on the day of the plague on account of Peor. What's going on here? I'll tell you what's going on here. In fact, Revelation 2 tells us what's going on here. In Jesus' address to the church in Pergamum, in Revelation 2, he says, Balaam taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So evidently, 
When Balaam couldn't curse God's people and get paid for it like he wanted to, if you were here last week, he taught Balak another way to weaken the people of God. Send in your women. Seduce them. Deceive them. And weaken them in that way. They will, listen, they will succumb to the temptation and worship your God. And then their God will become jealous and roll out consequences upon them for being unfaithful and you will weaken your enemies. Midianites, Moabites. Wow. That's crafty. Numbers 31 tells us the same thing. That on Balaam's advice, the Moabite women caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. In other words, it worked. And God knows. He knew exactly what was going on. He saw the way the Moabites seduced and deceived his people. And so at the end of chapter 25, he says, strike them down. In chapter 31, they'll do just that. Here's the comfort for you. Christians, and our future hope. Listen, it's hard to fight temptation and seduction in the wilderness. It's hard to keep your guard up all the time, fighting all the time, hating sin all the time, but we're called to it. We're called to it, but it's hard. We try, we succeed sometimes, we fail. Other times we, we go some more, but it's hard. God knows that. God knows all the seducers you face. All the seductions and enticements and enticers. He knows every seducer who has ever led any of his people away. And one day, just like we read of in Numbers 31, one day, all the seducers in this wilderness called life will be gone. You'll never be seduced again. Everyone who leads God's people into sin will be judged should they not repent. Like the, the pornography industry isn't going to exist in heaven. Everyone involved in it will face God's judgment should they not repent. Social media companies, I don't think it's going to exist there either with all their seductions. Making money off of you as you measure yourself against the rest of the world and the temptation that is there to, to crave and to covet and all the damage that that does, especially to young women. Social media companies might exist in hell. I've been thinking about this. Perhaps with nothing more than the eternal lives of the saints on their feet and the eternal torment that comes from them watching and seeing what they're missing out on and craving and coveting shalom and glory. Anyone who's ever led one of your children astray. Anyone who's ever led spouse astray. Anyone who's ever led your friend astray. 
led astray into sex, led astray into infidelity, into party and drug culture, or political idolatry. Or led astray from from an orthodox understanding of the Scriptures. Listen, when any of that happens, the seduced are culpable. The seduced are culpable. I'm not saying that they're not. They're absolutely culpable and are to grow in hating sin and battling sin and fleeing from this seduction. But God's Word tells us here, so too are the seducers culpable. And should they not repent and trust in Jesus, they will face His judgment. This is to be a comfort to us as Christians and a future hope that we rest in. Let's pray. Father, your word, it both cuts and comforts. And I pray now that your, your word would cut and comfort by your spirit according to your will in this room. We confess that we are sinful. We have an immense propensity to sin. Be revealing sin to us, Lord. Grow us in our hatred for it that we might confess it and turn and repent. And in the midst of that, Lord, would you also remind us of the atonement of Christ, that he really did pay it all for those who trust in him. You're not looking to us to make it up to you. You're looking upon Christ. We're looking upon Christ. And hearing, it is finished. And because of all of that, we're free to hate sin. Free to call sin, sin, and hate it, and battle against it. And Lord, we pray that you would keep us faithful in this pursuit. And grow us in our resolve and our faithfulness all powered by the forgiveness of Jesus and the indwelling of your Holy Spirit in our lives, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.